Well, let's turn back to Mark chapter 7. It's been a couple weeks of a pause from our journey through Mark, and we're just going at such a rapid pace here, almost halfway through this gospel as we approach a year time walking with Jesus. And there's, there's really no, no reason to hurry through this incredible story as we get to walk with Jesus one day at a time, one step at a time. That's been our conviction for this year, and it continues, doesn't it? So we're finishing up Mark chapter 7. What a section. Perhaps one of the most challenging statements that Jesus ever made, followed by one of the strangest miracles he ever performed, and maybe the grossest one. And so what does that mean, and how do we tie those together? We left off uh, this journey in Mark 7 where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees. He's accused of not following the traditions of the Pharisees, which they held really as equal with the Scriptures. Jesus rebukes them for really being uh, uh, not closer to God but far from Him. And he quoted the passage in Isaiah. This is in chapter 7, verse 6. He said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You're hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So he, he accuses them of having hard hearts, neglecting the law for their man-made traditions and actually missing the heart of God completely. And then he went on to use two specific examples of how their tradition and their religion had kept them from the heart of God not drawn them closer to him. They ignored their responsibilities for caring for parents in order to become righteous and holy and make a devotion unto the Lord. And then he mentioned their dietary restrictions, which were meant to set them apart as a people, but not to divide and ultimately lead them away from God's heart. And we had to wrestle with those because those aren't primary issues for us today in our 21st century ears. And so we, we dug into that. Even his disciples failed to understand his teaching. It was that foreign to them, and they've been with him so consistently. And so we know if they struggled, if the Pharisees struggled to receive it, then we too must put ourselves into that place. But Mark is so relentless in teaching this primary message that the ones that we would expect, that the world would say, they're the ones, they're the holy ones, the ones we would expect to understand and receive Jesus' teaching, to receive him as Messiah, are the ones that are actually furthest from him and have the hardest time. It's the least likely ones, the unexpected ones, the ones the world would say are, are, are far from God, unclean, unworthy. They're the ones that grasp and receive the message of the kingdom and receive healing from Jesus. And this has been on full display really throughout the story and we see it again in these, these final two brief but powerful and albeit strange encounters as we wrap up chapter 7. Let's take them one at a time. Begin in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman who, whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Jesus said to her, First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on, be- on the bed, and the demon was gone. So on first read at the surface level, the reason this is so challenging, I mean, you caught it, didn't you? Did Jesus just call her a dog? Remember this hermeneutic, this way of reading Scripture and applying it that is so vital. We've seen it again and again. If there's anything in a story, remember, this is written 2,000 years ago into a specific context. We're so far removed. If there's any phrase or part of, of an account that we don't immediately understand, or it just seems to, we can't just set it aside and believe we understand the full teaching. And so we need to find a, an interpretation that, that fits, that, that fits the whole passage. It, it should sound pretty, pretty awkward to our ears that Jesus would, would, would degrade anyone, would degrade this woman or compare her to being a dog. And so how, how can we interpret this and receive this and make sense of this? And I think there is uh, something that clearly binds them together. We know Jesus would not belittle or degrade anyone. It, that wouldn't fit within anything we know about Jesus, certainly in the entire narrative. He receives all peoples who come to him. Never once do we see him not respond and help and heal, and nothing changes here. But then why those words that sound so strange to our ears? I believe he is... He is making a point that he, is, he, he has been making throughout this broader section, and Mark wants to drive it home with this account, believing that not only the disciples are present with him, but also some of the Pharisees who have been traveling with him, that the language he used actually engaged this woman. Do you, do you notice? She quickly responds. She understands what he is communicating, and, and I believe making a point. She doesn't withdraw, hang her head, and leave, and Jesus blesses her and heals, answers her request. First, I think he's elevating again someone that is the least likely one. Once again, in this encounter, saying to his disciples and the Pharisees, do you still not see, do you still not understand? I've come for all peoples. She was about as far removed as you could get, and it would have been immediately understood in that context. We know much less about the cultures at the time. But in Tyre, Tyre and the region around it, Sidon, were often part, paired together throughout the scriptures, derided against by the prophets as being pagan lands, unholy and, and, and um, arrogant against God, denying who he was. The, the historian Josephus, who wrote in the first century, the Jewish historian, not only said it went two ways, that, that the Tyrians actually had more disrespect and hatred toward the Jews of any other people, and they were their, their northern neighbors. And here Jesus is in this region, in Tyre, encountering a woman, a Syrian Phoenician woman who would have been the furthest from God. And God's people would have said had no right to even come before him. Here she is on her knees before him in in desperation, in need. And Jesus engages her and she engages with him. And so I believe that statement was done somewhat sarcastically or tongue-in-cheek, satire, in the way that he said it, because it, it, it absolutely engaged her response. And I believe he was probably likely speaking, of, speaking in a cliche that was well-known. Haven't you heard it said? was often a way that he taught, especially with the Pharisees, and it follows right in line with that phraseology. Haven't you heard it said that the children should receive first and not 
not toss any bread to the dogs? And she says, yes, Lord. So she immediately responds and spars with Jesus, so to speak, which I believe would have been evident in that communication style. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs could eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And we know his response over in Matthew is, by this statement, by this great faith, Matthew 15, you have your, you, you have your healing of your daughter. It's, it's an incredible account, but at first read, we do struggle with it. So as he employs sarcasm or satire to drive home this broader theme of the upside-down kingdom, that those who are struggling to grasp it continue to remain apart from him, and those that would seemingly be the furthest removed from him can receive it. The Pharisees, the disciples, what would they have expected a Jewish rabbi to say to this Tyrian woman coming before him? Exactly what he said. You are not worthy. I have come for my people away from me. And he engages her. She engages and somewhat spars with him emotionally, verbally. She brings her whole self to him. She is vulnerable before him. And Jesus receives and blesses and heals. I find it striking, as I, even as I was reviewing the, my notes this morning, and with the images and the pictures I'm sure you've, you've seen of the refugees fleeing Afghanistan, that there would be many in our country, perhaps even those claiming the name of Christ, who would say something very similar to the refugees. Do not come and take our bread. Do not come and take our jobs. And the heart of Jesus is radically for the oppressed, the marginalized and the refugees, and we would pray and lean into that heart. I think Mark elevates her in a significant way, uh, in a couple ways. First, not only is he including this account in his gospel story, but he's using it at the pinnacle moment of this broader theme of who is acceptable to Jesus, who can come and receive, who can come and find healing. He uses this account, this woman, and then by highlighting that she addresses him as Lord. Yes, Lord. She is the only one in Mark's gospel to address Jesus as Lord. Certainly many believed in him as Lord. As Lord. In Matthew and Luke, the, the Roman centurion addressed him as Lord. So she wasn't the only one to do so. But Mark reserves that, that highest of declaration for this account, for this woman, and honors her and elevates her. Account number two, if that's account number one, one of the harder sayings or passages of Scripture, but account number two declaring that Jesus has ultimately come for all peoples is this healing account that we see at the end of chapter seven, the healing of the deaf and mute man. Let's read that from 31 to the end. Jesus left that vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. I'll pause there and again highlight something we've seen uh, throughout this story. In these, in between, you have to read between the lines and understand something about geography. Uh, that, that journey, said right there in one verse, was 40 to 50 miles if, he, if they went pretty direct. On foot. And, and we have said how, we've, we've wondered and postulated how much discipleship happened on the road, on the journey, 
in the parts that we don't even, don't even see in the story. Multiple days of traveling to go 40 to 50 miles up and down and over hills in an arid country. Right, Phil? Days of travel with Jesus. How many questions and conversations happened along the journey? Let's continue. When they were in the Decapolis, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. After Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into his ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which in Aramaic means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did that, the more they kept on talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus first passed through Sidon, which we shouldn't just ignore. As I mentioned, Tyre and the region of Sidon were often paired together as as these very pagan places. We have to assume that as Jesus went through, he was also teaching and healing all that came to him, as was his practice throughout. Jesus even used Tyre and Sidon in a poignant example in Matthew eleven twenty one, 21. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, the least likely of places, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They would have turned to me. So again, the, the, the view of, of the Jewish people against these regions as being so far from God, Jesus is just shattering that. He is coming through the region to bring his presence, to bring his healing, to bring God's love to all peoples. Such a powerful example. Now we have to assume that Jesus was healing many along the way, and Mark could have probably picked a number of accounts. So why this one? This one stands as a powerful example of what the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the Messiah means. This deaf man, nearly mute, is healed completely in a moment. It is one of the strangest healing accounts in all of the Gospels. He put his fingers in the man's ears. He spit and touched his tongue. Now, the the text doesn't say he spit on his tongue or spit on his hands and put it on his tongue, thankfully. But if you read forward, if you know the story, in the very next chapter in Mark he does spit on a man's eyes. If it's the same account from John 9, he made a little mud with his saliva and the dust and then put that on the man's eyes. And if you read any kind of commentary or scholarship, there are so many different opinions on this. Some on one side saying that saliva was, was, had some kind of healing properties in that day. I'm not convinced of that. Actually, I think it's more likely, and, and many scholars believe, that spit was equal with excrement to the Jews as far as defilement, if it was to get on some, somebody else and you would need to ceremonial wash or clean, which seems to be much more in keeping with, with how often they would clean and wash and set themselves apart from any kind of defilement. That seems more likely. We're, we're, just, we're uncertain. And ultimately, we're uncertain what Jesus was about here. I, ha- I postulate. I postulate that the coming of the kingdom is so powerful. And we've seen this before. Jesus, Jesus touches a leper, and instead of getting leprosy, he heals completely. Jesus goes into the most, what, what, the, wor- what the world of the Jews would say, the defiled places, the places that would make one unclean, even being, even being in the presence of a woman with a, a discharge of blood, for example, of the Syrophoenician woman who was n- not only a, 
not only a woman and a, and a foreigner, but was living with a girl who had an unclean spirit, they said. Jesus went into all of these places, and his presence and his righteousness brought healing and brought cleanliness to those places, not the other way around. And if spit did defile in any way, it was Jesus pressing the, the point and the analogy for those that did witness or, or know that nothing, nothing could keep from healing happening in the presence of God. His righteousness and holiness would extend to all, regardless of the circumstances. Just a postulation, just a guess. So many are divided, and if that's interesting to you to research, there's plenty out there. Whatever actually happened in this account, spit was involved, and it was seen as meaningful to include. And so we again reinforce that same hermeneutic that when we, we don't fully understand, we need to hold openly the exact interpretation of the Scripture. But what we can lay, lay down is we see this consistent theme of Jesus, Jesus reaching and healing the last and the least likely. And his healing becomes signs for the greater healing. Clearly, this is a physical healing. The man can now speak. He can now hear. And he is one that goes out and proclaims Jesus wherever he goes. But all of these healings are meant to reveal a deeper spiritual healing. And this is the work of the kingdom, that those who cannot hear can hear. Those that cannot rightly speak or proclaim the truth or proclaim the gospel, their tongues are loosened to proclaim when they encounter Jesus and when he brings his righteousness to them. Let's not miss, I did want to call out, the deep sigh that Jesus let out, because I don't know about you, but I can resonate with that. A deep sigh. It could also be translated as a groan. It's translated that way when Paul used it in Romans 8, 22 and 23, a somewhat well-known passage when Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. It's that same word, sighing, in the pains of childbirth right up into this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. This, this word was used in a, in a deep longing kind of way for something that is not yet. It could be that Jesus was simply weary and again encountering a man who was, who was hurting and suffering limited from fully walking in the kingdom. And how many had he been encountering like that? Potentially his sigh is just weariness at the brokenness that is in the world. Potentially it is thinking of what's to come to, to truly bring redemption to creation, what it was going to cost him through the cross and crucifixion. Perhaps that deep groaning of what it would cost to deliver, to heal ultimately, to bring the fullness of the kingdom. And then the longing and the recognition that it, how long it would be, though he, that Jesus claims he doesn't know how fully long it will be before God comes to establish the kingdom, before Jesus would return and reign forever. And here we are, 2,000 years removed. Perhaps Jesus' groaning was for the coming of the kingdom in fullness, knowing how far it was, how long sin and pain and suffering and brokenness would continue to reign and impact all of his creation, all of God's sons and daughters. And so many continue to be hurting and suffering because sin has come and sin has broken and sin has marred all things and touches us all like a virus that infects this world. But where Jesus comes and is present, where Jesus comes and touches, 
part of his kingdom breaks out in fullness, in wholeness, in healing, in freedom, in deliverance. And we see that theme again and again and again. We should know, and God's people should have known when they saw these signs, it should have immediately been evident of the coming of the Messiah, the one they had been longing for, the one they had been praying for. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes, this is Isaiah prophesying of the coming of God's kingdom, where the Christ will come to reign, the Messiah will come to reign. This is what it will look like. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like the deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. The Pharisees would have had this memorized. How did they not see it when it was right before their eyes? As they still, the ones that should hear did not and had, had closed ears. The ones that should have seen and perceived did not, they were blinded. The ones that should have been softened in heart and received their Messiah were hardened against him. And the least likely ones, the marginalized, the outcasts of society, are the ones that are brought in, healed, delivered, and sent out to proclaim. Notice they ignore Jesus's restriction. How could they say any other? And we can imagine this man saying something very similar to the blind man's statement in John chapter 9. When they asked him of Jesus, what did he say? All I know, I don't know about this man. All I know is I was blind and now I see. Maybe one of the more powerful testimonies ever given. And I think we can assume this man said something similar. All I, with a newfound tongue, all I know is I could not hear and could not speak, but now I hear and now I proclaim what this man has done for me. We have a longing and a groaning in this world for all things to be healed, to be renewed, to be made right. And perhaps now more than ever, we face it, we feel it. The things that were simply out there as I began today have started to press in more closely, not just through media and access that we, that we all have to see our world and how small it's getting technologically speaking, but also because our hearts are being pressed in and living in a pandemic with this world, which should, which should unify us all, continues to divide. This world for once has a common enemy, and we are still divided. How tragic. By something we can't even see. Something that works in such similar ways as the enemy of God's kingdom. To invade, to cause fear, to cause division and divisiveness, and to polarize and politicize. That's the way the enemy, the opposer of God's kingdom works, and we face this virus that is amongst us and is pervasive, yet we cannot see and we cannot attack. And instead of responding in fear, God's people are called to respond, to walk by faith in the one who wants to redeem all things, heal all things. And we have been called as his agents, indwelt now with the very spirit of righteousness and of healing, bringing his kingdom wherever we go to extend it, to represent Jesus where we go, all the while with deep sighs and groaning like our Messiah before us, that that brokenness and that hurt and that suffering seems so far away from being fully healed and redeemed and restored. And we can become overwhelmed and crushed by that, or we can walk in faithfulness one step at a time, doing something small that we may never know would make any big difference but looking for the works of the kingdom that he is inviting us into. I wonder if Mark wants us to think 
of the creation. When God created the world and saw all that he had made, Genesis 1.31, and declared it was all good before sin came and broke and marred the creation. Something similar is proclaimed here as chapter 7 ends. They declare of Jesus, he has done all things well. He is recreating this world. He is redeeming. It's the sozo of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus that creates wholeness and fullness wherever he goes. And we are invited into that same kingdom work. Let's once again cling to his promise to us as to his first disciples, John 16, 33. I have told you all these things. I have revealed all of these things that in me you might have peace because in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he grants to us his authority to be his kingdom agents and ambassadors, to extend his mercies wherever we are sent. As we have lived in a, for many of us, in a very affluent economy and time and place in our world through our lives, rarely touched by the pains and sufferings of so many others. Perhaps we have never come before Jesus truly needy and desperate. Those that are pray differently. Those that are in desperation and in need, like the Syrian Phoenician woman, like this man who cannot hear or speak, pray differently and have an opportunity for a faith to grow that we may not even be able to grasp. Is it possible that in this current time and place that we now live, instead of withdrawing, we are meant to, we are meant to lean in and being called to contend for the works of the kingdom and the works of the gospel, to be praying in whole new ways that we never would have ever otherwise, to see deliverance, to see healing, to see freedom and victory and peace extend to all peoples. And if the refugees come to our area, will God's people be the first to receive and to respond, to extend mercy and grace and kingdom hope to those that are in full despair, fear, and pain? Will we pray for the least and the last, the, the least and the last, Pray for compassion and strength to love these who our world has deemed as unworthy or unlovable, whether refugees or addicts or homeless or felons or politicians or whatever might be labeled on that list. Will we take a posture that is like this Syrophoenician woman coming before Jesus in humility, but also in vulnerability, in great need for Jesus to reach and touch us? Will we Bring all to him, as Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us, we can come to Jesus, we can come to the throne of God with freedom and confidence because of what Christ has done for us, and yet with humility before him. Or do we even think of ourselves as being unworthy of his grace, of his healing? Have our words or our posture said where the extent of the kingdom would reign where the extent of his healing would come. Will we say, do we say to God, no, you won't heal this. You won't heal me. I've prayed before and you've said no. Will we say to others who are in suffering and pain, no, you won't heal in that way. Have we determined the parameters of the kingdom in our own flesh? Or will we walk by the Spirit to see it extend in all ways as Jesus models for us so clearly? Will we take a posture a posture of begging, though we need not beg because our king has already proven his desire to heal and to reach and to deliver and to welcome.
Will we join him? Let's cling to a final promise from Revelation chapter 21 that gives that picture of the coming kingdom where Jesus, our King and Messiah, will make all things new. He is making all things new. And we groan, our spirit groans in longing for that day as he sends us from this place, this place of, we pray, pause and peace to go into the places he's called us to be agents and ambassadors of his kingdom. Let's pray to these ends. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven forever. Where you are making all things new, would you make all things new here and now in our families, in our homes, in our broken relationships, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools. You have indwelt those who have trusted in you and are putting their faith in you. You've indwelt with your Holy Spirit. Would you dwell in us again? Fill us again and anew, we pray, Lord, that as we go, we'd extend your kingdom of grace, of love, of mercy, of healing, of righteousness, knowing, Lord, we need to receive even more here and now to be equipped to do your work where we are weary, where we are overwhelmed, where we are groaning. We join you, Jesus. I believe that groaning and that deep sighing continues to see the hurt and the brokenness in your world. We join in that, but we are not crushed by it because your spirit brings life, peace, joy, and love. Show us, Lord, open our eyes, open our ears to hear, our eyes to see hurt, loosen our tongue to proclaim truth unto your glory and for our joy. Amen. Tommy, come and lead us in a chance to respond by either meditating on the words that God is continuing to impress upon you through his spirit by singing some of these words, if you know them or following along, make them your prayers that you sing. Receive communion if you've got those elements on the way in as our regular practice every time we gather to be reminded that we are his, that his life is given for us, that we can partake again and be not only people of remembrance, but people of declaration of the coming of the kingdom, the coming where we will one day all feast together in that place in the fullness of hope, and the fullness of joy, in the fullness of healing and freedom in his kingdom. Respond as God leads. Grace and peace to all.